This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome back. I'm Martin Strong, and coming up, we're going to talk art with the folks from the Vancouver Art Gallery. But first, on this edition of Vancouver Consumer, here's some of the consumer news from the past week. Finance Minister Christia Freeland met on Tuesday with top executives from Canada's big grocery chains. Executives from Loblaw, Metro, Empire, Walmart, and Costco were in Ottawa to talk about possibly stabilizing food costs. Grocery prices in Canada rose 8.5% year over year in July, which is more than double the overall inflation rate. The Retail Council of Canada, which represents those big stores, said in a statement earlier this month that the rising cost of food has nothing to do with them. They're just passing on the cost from the manufacturers and the producers. Meantime, the federal finance minister has introduced new legislation that, if passed, would get rid of the GST on new rental developments. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau had promised this new legislation as a way to ease the housing crisis and affordability crunch that we're all seeing. The plan would mean an apartment valued at a half million bucks would be about $25,000 cheaper, and that could spur construction of these kinds of new homes. And it looks like commercial real estate in Greater Vancouver is not doing all that well. Some new numbers from the uh, Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver show that prices are down and so are sales, more than 56% lower than this time last year. The Real Estate Board is blaming higher interest rates and says commercial real estate will probably continue its downward trajectory for the rest of the year. And you like those individually wrapped cheese slices? Kraft Heinz has recalled more than 83,000 cases of cheese slices because those wrappers could be a choking hazard. The company says one of its wrapping machines had a bit of a glitch that made it possible for a strip of film to stay on the cheese slice even after it's been removed from the wrapper. The recall affects individually wrapped Kraft Singles American processed cheese slices. They also say that the wrapping machine has been uh, disciplined. No, it's been fixed. Have you heard about Instacart? If you haven't, you probably will soon. Instacart is a grocery delivery service based where else? In San Francisco. It operates here in the lower mainland as well as all over North America. Its stock went public on Tuesday, selling 22 million shares at 30 bucks a share. That means the company raised $660 million And a lot of that is going to go to advertising and marketing. So that means you'll probably be seeing Instacart everywhere. They provide delivery and pickup from 85% of North American stores using a network of 600,000 freelance shoppers. I guess they're kind of like Uber drivers, but they go out and do your shopping for you. And if you were at Disney World in Florida and you saw an actual black bear walking through the park, walking through Disney World, you'd probably think, wow, that country bear jamboree has really upped its game. Uh, But this bear had nothing to do with that. It was a wild black bear that was spotted in a tree inside the park near Frontierland as uh, the staff was opening up on Monday morning. Disney said in a statement, the bear was caught by the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission 
and the plan was to relocate it back in the wild. They say the bear was just trying to pack on some pounds before hibernation season, so it went a little off track looking for food. This is Vancouver Consumer. I'm Martin Strong. And coming up, we'll look at the world of art with the folks from the Vancouver Art Gallery. It is anything but a stuffy, boring experience. And the VAG has a lot of new experiences that you and your family can have a lot of fun with. Plus, they've got some big plans for their new location. We'll get the latest scoop on that when Vancouver Consumer continues right after this. This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome back. It's Vancouver Consumer. I'm Martin Strong, and it's exciting times for the Vancouver Art Gallery. They've recently broken ground on their brand new home on West Georgia. It should be a spectacular place and a huge part of the cultural life of Vancouver, just like their current location between Robson and West Georgia on Hornby. It really is a center of culture in the city, a place where people meet to celebrate, to protest, and that's just the outside. Inside the Vancouver Art Gallery is a world-class gallery that hosts some of the most exciting international exhibitions and also houses an expansive permanent collection of art with over 1,200 pieces, both international and uh, showcasing this part of the world. Their collection of indigenous art, for example, is growing all the time. Very exciting stuff going on there. They're also very excited to present a brand new Emily Carr exhibition that opens next Saturday, September 30th. And to talk about it, it's the senior curator of the Vancouver Art Gallery, Diana Friendel. Hi, Diana. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Hi. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Yeah. And first of all, congratulations. Uh, last week, they broke ground on the brand new art gallery. That's got to be very exciting for everybody involved. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really exciting moment. I think this is a time we were all waiting for is that kind of activation of the space and the site. Um, it was a ground awakening. So it was really about um, kind of awakening the, the spirits and, and the site and, and thinking about its future. So they'll actually break physical ground. Um, they're looking in November. Uh, so it's soon, you know, it's this. And I think this is, this is it. It's the, really the launch of our public campaign so it's a time for everyone to get behind what is the the city's gallery yeah it really is i mentioned it it's it's such a meeting place and such a center of culture and here's a question i'm guessing you've been asked a million times already but is there sort of a vague idea of when the new gallery will open yeah, so we um, want to be, you know, in sight on um, 2028, 29, um, in the space with exhibitions. So we actually just, where, you know, lots of work that happens kind of in advance of that is really thinking about what those first shows are. Who, who will you see when you walk through the doors of the Vancouver Art Gallery? You know, it really is a place for everyone, and it tells the story of this place, which is a really long history and diverse history so thinking about what are those stories we want to tell our collection is rich in, in art from bc so thinking about um what narratives we'll be telling in, in those first you know in those first few years yeah i guess as the senior curator that's that's a challenge trying to decide what 
it represents, the stories you're going to tell. And I guess when you think about the Vancouver Art Gallery and, you know, uh, art in British Columbia, one of the big stories is Emily Carr. And mm -hmm. Emily Carr is a big part of the gallery at all times, but you have something very special coming up next Saturday. Uh, it's an Emily mm -hmm. Carr exhibition. Tell us about that. Yeah, so it's, um, it's you know, you're right. I mean, Emily Carr has been a big part of the gallery from its early beginnings in 1931. I mean, it, we, we acquired our first work of Emily Carr, um, Emily Carr in 1937. The first exhibition was a year later in 1938. Um, and then the trust that was um, selected by Emily Carr together with the estate, um, Lauren Harris. So they, that was bequeathed to the gallery, the Emily Carr Trust in 1945 following her passing. So it's, you know, we've been caretakers of Emily Carr's collection for, you know, quite, quite some time really since, you know, the, the founding of the gallery. So I think um, it's always been a prominent part of our collection and, and, and has a space in the gallery. So from its original location, we've always sort of been on Georgia, um, the original location of the gallery, there was an Emily Carr gallery. Uh, there was a permanent exhibition of her work in 19, you know, from 19, from uh, following that first exhibition in 1938, all the way it led really the expansion project once the trust, the Emily Carr Trust came to the gallery. And that was the large grouping of works um, that came and, we do. We have a very comprehensive collection, probably the most comprehensive collection in the world. And this exhibition, which is really one room on the fourth floor, is speaking to to that relationship. Really, just looking, it explores the history of the gallery's car collection, and it really speculates about possibilities for future programming. So, what will that look like in the new building? And it maps key biographical moments in her life alongside significant exhibitions and acquisitions of her work, um, as well as conservation efforts that um, together they really look at how the two, the Emily Carr Trust and the gallery have shaped one another over the course of the century. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I guess in some ways, in an odd kind of way, uh, a retrospective of Emily Carr is almost autobiographical of the Vancouver Art Gallery, like you just described. Yeah, I mean, this is because it's one room. It's a, it's a small space. There are twenty five works in the in the exhibition, but it pulls a lot from our archives. So you sort of see Emily Carr's as they were displayed in the original gallery, you know, the original building galleries. You see uh, works. There were lots of um, efforts. There was a we called it a car wash. That uh, was done where they were raising funds for a restoration fund that would be to to wash the cars. So it was a, um, <laughs> a, a wash that would do with the paperwork, you know, that was because to sort of stop them from deteriorating. Also, there was, you know, other conservation efforts. They were really progressive in the sort of care for the car. And part of that was about wanting to make, make it accessible to the public. So touring it across the province, taking it to schools, taking it to school gymnasiums, um, touring it uh, across the nation, but also internationally and really kind of promoting the collection and the life and, and art of cars. So I, there was really some great care taken with it. And, and it, you know, I think in many ways, you, you know, it's a big part of our history, as you said. So I think um, you can see moments where they intersect and, and look at some of the, some of the works that have come into the collection and where where the strengths are and 
and I think you talk about the art of this place in, in also in, in kind of a relationship to Carr. So how her, her work and her journals speak to what was happening, you know, the art of the art of the time and the art of this place from the 1920s onward until her passing in the 1940s. And I will never hear the song car wash the same ever again. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Cars with two R's. Yeah. 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 yeah, It was great to see these archives, to see, you know, staff, um, fellow colleagues from the past that were, you know, decked out in car wash t-shirts and washing cars for $3 a car to make, (laughs) to raise funds. That's great. We're talking to Diana Frendel, the senior curator of the Vancouver Art Gallery, and we're talking about uh, the gallery's plans, uh, moving to a new building, but also a brand new Emily Carr exhibition, which uh, which is really significant for the Vancouver Art Gallery because Emily Carr uh, has been such a big part of the gallery's history. So let's talk for people, you know, who who might not know that much about Emily Carr the artist and what she represents. Um, I mean, this is kind of a big, vague question, but why is Emily Carr uh, so important, not only to British Columbia, but to, to the world of art in general? Um, I think, you know, like many artists of her time, she was an artist that was really curious. So from an early age, um, she uh, was was interested in art and studying art, not just here, but abroad. So in her, in her journals, we know a lot about Carr through her journals. So she was someone who documented her own life and what was happening around her. And in her journals, we know that, you know, from, from early in her teens, she was, had a sensitivity and a devotion to art that really isolated her from her sisters um, who kind of failed to understand either her work or her desire to pursue painting. So she, you know, quickly um, in her, when she was, was old enough, she sought from her, because her parents had passed, so she sought to, to study, to study outside of BC. And so she, it was in her late teens after the death of her parents that she um, approached her legal guardian to secure funds and attended the California School of Design. And so she spent uh, three years in San Francisco where she received traditional education and depiction of still life and landscapes. And then um, she went to travel. She traveled to England and later she traveled to France. And so she was really there in the 1910s, 1911s, and at a time when um, really under this sort of training of artists that introduced her to French post-impressionism, so styles like Fauvism and things that really, which, you know, has a kind of experimentation with perspective and scale and color. And it was really this um, introduction to kind of a, a, maybe a plurality of styles and, and artists and that she really started her own experimentation to kind of come into her own and think around, kind of move away from from a literal representation of natural forms and that she had learnt in her training in, in California and to start kind of finding her own rhythm. And, and she returned with this, like returned with this training to, to her home in Victoria. And that's when she really starts to capture the landscapes around her. So Victoria, um, and I think it's, it, you know, a lot of people when they talk, they talk about Carr in terms of the landscape. This was also the time that she began to doc, document Indigenous carvings throughout the Northwest Coast. So she had made several trips um, to Alaska and to Northern BC and into um, Central BC, where she was 
was spending time sketching in situ in, in indigenous villages, a lot of totemic sculptures at the time um, that she was also depicting, and you'll see a lot of this in her earlier works. Um, she, at this time, she also befriends um, Mark Toby later in her practice, and this has an, you know, more of kind of an experimental with an abstraction. So you really follow these shifts in her career that kind of become, she's surrounding herself with the local, but also very much with international artists that have a great influence on her. She was someone who constantly wanted to learn, so she was inviting, Mark Toby came to her studio in Victoria and taught lessons. She was a very, I'm, I'm, for myself, I'm really interested in how Carr becomes this you know, this constellation of relations, like there's a meeting place in her, in her practice. So while we, we, sent, we often center Emily Carr um, in the narrative, there's all of this surrounding activity around her that we see in her relationships with Indigenous artists like Sophie Frank, who was a basket weaver and had a close relationship with Emily Carr, to artists lesser known, Lee Nam, who she talks about often in her journals of a particular period and was a Chinese artist who, whose ink paintings have also kind of recently surfaced and have been talked about in, in scholarship around Carr's interest in, in um, ink painting. So there was, you know, we can, we can learn about other art and other practices at a time through her, through her journals, through her work, looking at the influences that she had. So it's, I'm, you know, and the gallery as well, we, we often do when we think about Carr, we think about her in relationship to her time, but also the legacy. So, you know, mm-hmm. where the artists here influenced, have been influenced by her, contemporary artists influenced by her. Wow. I mean, there's a and University it- of Art and Design named after her. So <laughs> she definitely... Yeah. <laughs> I've yeah. taken classes there. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the show, uh, it starts on Saturday on uh, yeah. September 30th, the Emily Carr Show. We're talking to Diana Frendel, the senior curator of the Vancouver Art Gallery. And if you would like to find out more information, just go to vanartgallery.bc.ca. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about uh, the gallery, uh, about the Emily Carr Show, and what you can expect with the brand new art gallery. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on and we'll have more when Vancouver Consumer continues right after this. This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome back. It's Vancouver Consumer. I'm Martin Strong and we're talking art with the senior curator of the Vancouver Art Gallery, Diana Frendel. Uh, you can go to vanartgallery.bc.ca. We're talking about the new Emily Carr exhibition that is opening uh, a week today, uh, Saturday, September 30th. And uh, one thing we should mention are the passes because uh, I, when my kids were little, we used to always get a family pass and it was really reasonable and we could bring the kids whenever we wanted. And the, and the more you go, the more it, it, it's worth it. So you, the great thing about being able to go to a gallery that you don't feel like you have to do the whole thing because you got to get your money's worth. You can go there and just look at one thing that you want to see and then come back a few days later or a week later or something. And, and you have, uh, kind of a new thing. Uh, it's sort of an access pass. And if people go to vanartgallery.bc.ca, they can get all the details. It can be as low as $58 a year mm-hmm. to, to yeah. for all access, right? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the nice thing now, I mean, we were talking about bringing the family, is that kids under 18 are free. So, um, so now, you know, there used to be a youth and uh, a cost for children, but now it's uh, annual. The all children under 18 are free, and then we have an annual access pass. So for $58, um, that gives you all access all year. So you can come as many times as you want. So as you were saying, I mean, it's nice to kind of come and have a slow look or come and see one exhibition and then maybe you want to come back or you're passing through town and, and, you know, downtown core and you want to come into the gallery. It's a, it's a really nice way to kind of come and go as you like and spend as little or as long as you want. Um, They've also recently lost, uh, launched a monthly access pass. So that has an activation fee of $29 and then you pay monthly $5 so you can stop one month or you can continue. Um, so really thinking about accessibility, about the cost of seeing, we really want, you know, you want to provide more art to more people and it needs to be accessible. Yeah, I think it's because we've all had that experience of being uh, a tourist in a city and you go to a big gallery and you feel like and you're already exhausted because you're a tourist and you feel like you have to go through everything. But this is a great way to to do it. And another thing about the art gallery that I don't think enough people know about is the bistro that's connected to the art gallery. It's kind of hidden there, but it's a great little spot. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. It's got the best patio. You know, it really does. Yeah. One of the best patios in the city. Um, you know, you're right downtown in the core and the weather has been phenomenal and it does, it gets so much sun, that location. And so it's open every day um, from 10 o'clock. They, they stop at four. Now they've relaunched at five happy hours. So it's a great place to come at sort of different times in the day. They have a really nice brunch, it runs all day and nice, Something yeah. for everyone. And and the Vancouver Art Gallery has a lot of artwork that isn't sh- being shown, like most galleries, because you have a huge yeah. you have a huge storehouse of of artwork. Because I remember in the nineties, I I had a tour and we went in the basement and there was oh, yeah. so much stuff down there. And I guess it uh, I guess you're looking forward to moving so you have a little extra space for that stuff. Yeah. So we. I mean, that's uh, the the storage and the vault is is still on site. We've actually increased that. If you were to go to the fourth floor, you would notice that um, a number of the galleries have been turned over to to the collection for storage. Um, It is typical, as you said, it's normal for institutions, collecting institutions, to show at any given time one to two percent of the collection. Uh, So it's always, there's always a number of, uh, you know, a large number of works that are in storage and have to be. You need to, you can't show all the Emily cars all the time because they do need to, they do need to, um, to, to change out. Um, You have to rotate works on paper, photography, we have a large photography collection. Um, So you're always thinking about the care of the works, the longevity of the works. But it's, it is in the new space. One of the big um, factors is that we will have the permanent gallery. So uh, we don't currently have a floor or a space that we use as the permanent gallery floor. Um, we change, we do all temporary rotations. We do show quite a bit from the collection, but um, in the new gallery, we'll have the permanent galleries that, um, that tell the story of this place. So that's, um, we will have a large, a larger percentage that's on permanent display. And of course, those will, you know, they'll have a, a cycle of maybe every three years, but we'll change out. We'll obviously have to do rotations of works on paper and sensitive works. 
Yeah. And over the years, I've seen some great photography at the Vancouver yeah. Art Gallery. And it's it seems to me, I mean, as the senior curator, I'm sure you have an opinion on this, but it seems like we're entering in uh, sort of a new age of appreciation of photography as art. Would you say that's true? Yeah. I mean, I think there was maybe a time when it was a question. Um, and we do, we have, I'm one of, of um, many curators at the gallery. I have a um, uh, we have a director of curatorial programs, Ava Vespini, who recently joined the gallery, and she is uh, a photography expert, had worked for many years in MoMA before her uh, last position at the ICA of Austin. And so she, you know, she brings a wealth of knowledge around photography, but and really building that collection moment. So we, we do have, it's a large part of our holdings. It's a really important part of the collection, but of the city to really uh, photo conceptualism, um, lots of great internationally renowned artists and who are from Vancouver, who work and live and practice in Vancouver. Um, and there, you know, this is, it, it's, yes, there was a time when maybe it was questioned, but I think we're, you know, now we have a photography festival in Vancouver. I think it's, um, it's understood to be very much a part of, of visual art. Yeah, yeah. And then there's there's uh, Emily Carr, which which is yeah. interesting to me because we were talking the big exhibition is uh, starts next Saturday on the 30th. And uh, Emily Carr has always been tied to the Vancouver Art Gallery. I mean, in your opinion, how is has the perception of her her work and her her life changed over these years? And, and what kind of new perspectives will we see uh, in this new exhibition? Well, I think this particular exhibition really focuses on, as I was saying, it's really the, it's not so much about um, her, although there are parts, I, there's 25 works in the exhibition, so you're really seeing the work and there is material, interpretive material that talks about um, her practice and those periods in her life, it looks chronologically, but it's really around the intersections of the gallery and the Emily Carr collection. So thinking about, you know, from the early beginnings of the gallery and the first show, the first exhibition of her work to, to you know, to today and to thinking about the future. So there's a lot of archival material that's used in the didactics. We'll have a very robust app that talks about that talks about her practice. It'll be a, an app that's ongoing. Um, but it's also, you know, in, in to answer your question around what is what is perspectives that have changed a lot. I mean, there's um, what's interesting in the from the perspective of this exhibition is that we are having the same conversations where for us as an institution about where Emily Carr sits in the gallery. Um, you know, the, the exhibition is titled A Room of Her Own, so it's speaking to the fact that it's one room in the gallery on the fourth floor, but it's also asking, we, we do invite, we actually ask um, visitors to vote in a poll, um, should Emily Carr have a room of her own in the new building? So it, it's really, those are questions that were leading the expansion project to the gallery in the 1930s. Um, to the new the move the, the move from the, its former location to its current location was around a big part of that was the impetus of having an Emily Carr permanent gallery, um, and you know we we've been on and off we've had at the fourth floor which has featured Emily Carr quite often in the gallery. Now they'll should this exhibition will be on display with rotations for a year. Um, will it continue? you know, until the new building. And so it's really, I mean, that's, that the show is really about the focus of 
um, these different moments, pivotal moments in her career, but all that intersect with the gallery. Um, and I think, you know, there has been lots of really important discussion around her, her appropriation of Indigenous uh, villages and culture and her work um, about, you know, the time that it was made and about the conversations that were happening. And, and so I think there's, there's, a, there's been a lot of scholarship around Emily Carr since really since the 19, um, maybe 1970s when Doris Shadbolt did a really important exhibition of her, of her career and her life in the former gallery. Um, and then, you know, internationally, there's a lot of discussion around her work, um, art historians about maybe her place within, you know, outside of the group of seven, but her influence by them. And, and she was always, the, the quote is always that she was told that you were one of us, but she was never formally accepted into the group. So these ideas of, of um, inclusion, exclusion, of her, also her kind of, um, you know, looking through, as I said earlier, my interest in her is really, is a lot to do with about what she can tell us about art of that time, maybe the art that was, that was under, is underrepresented today and was underrepresented at the time, but she was interested in these other practices. She was someone who was really invested in, in understanding art histories outside of the Western narrative. And so when we read her journals, we, we can find out who she was looking at and, and who she was, um, you know, who she was, who, who she was inspired by and use that as a way to tell a more expanded narrative of West Coast modernism. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting the way, because I guess we all, most of us know Emily Carr, there's, there is, uh, they tend to be um, nature, a lot of indigenous art within that. And in this exhibition, are there, are there works that will surprise people? That are that are maybe early works that are a little different than we might expect. I think. I mean, we get, you'll definitely see works that are familiar. There's the you know ones that are iconic in our collection that people often um, will always gravitate to. Lots because there's quite a few of the works are oil on canvas. Um, but there's some early. You know, the our collection is richest in the 1930s, so we do have a lot of works on paper. Um, her works that she was doing when she was really starting to experiment with materials. So when there was um, a thinning of the oil and, and also an application of charcoal, so the oil charcoal on, on paper. And this is this really allowed her to kind of create quickly and to create in, in situ. And so she was creating these really vibrant sketches where you can see her kind of working through movements and um, form in her works. And so there, there's quite a few of those. I know people really like when we bring them out because they, they do have to rotate. So that'll rotate three times um, to new kind of iterations of works from that period. Um, but in terms of things, I feel everyone is really familiar. <laughs> but they, they might, um, one of my favorite works, and it's the work that's a very key image of the question, it's, it's a self-portrait and it's her, you see the back of her painting. So she's you know, painting a, um, I mean, it, it's left for your imagination. What is she painting? Is she painting a landscape? Is she painting herself? Is, you know, it's a, um, it's a work, a canvas, oil on canvas work that we have. Um, and it's, uh, a, you know, one of maybe that people are less familiar with. We don't, right. we don't always have it. So I think people are most familiar, as you said, with her, her, um, paintings from her sketching trips of indigenous and totemic sculptures and, 
as well as the landscapes. They're very rhythmic landscapes. Yeah. Well, I, I can't wait to see it. It opens uh, Saturday, next Saturday, yes. the 30th of September at the Vancouver Art Gallery. And you can go to vanartgallery.bc.ca for uh, all the information and uh, look into getting a pass. They, they've they're, they've never been this uh, affordable to, to become a part of the Vancouver Art Gallery. And uh, I think it's, it's well worth it. And Senior Curator Diana Frendel, thanks for talking to us. Thank you. Thanks for the call. Yeah. Uh, Diana Frendel is the senior curator of the Vancouver Art Gallery and that website again, vanartgallery.bc.ca. And this is Vancouver Consumer. And coming up, it was today in Vancouver history that the Canucks got a new home. But is it cursed? That might be a bit harsh. But uh, I have that story when Vancouver Consumer continues right after this. This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome back. I'm Martin Strong, and I've got some Today in Vancouver history and a story you might remember if you go back to 1995. It was this day, September 23rd, 28 years ago, 1995, when the Vancouver Canucks played their first ever full game in their new home, General Motors Place. You now know it as Rogers Arena. It was an exhibition game played in front of 15,000 fans as the Canucks won 4-3 over the Anaheim Mighty Ducks. It was pretty much unanimous among the team and the new Uh, That the new arena was a big improvement over the Pacific Coliseum where the Canucks have been playing since they joined the NHL in 1970. Uh, The GM of the team, Pat Quinn, gushed to the Vancouver province saying that it's, quote, absolutely fantastic and that the new GM place would be a great home for the team for a long time. Canuck legend Pavel Bure told a reporter that he feels great every time he comes to the arena and he gave special props to what he called the beautiful dressing rooms, and the giant TV screen. And even though not many fans were complaining about the new GM place, the local newspapers did have some uh, criticisms, mainly about the price of food and drinks. The Vancouver province pointed out that a Coke at GM place would cost a whopping $2. But most fans didn't seem to mind. Ticket sales were brisk and expectations were high for the Vancouver Canucks at that time in 1995. Not only did they have this new arena, they also had a pretty good team, a championship-caliber team that in 1994 had taken the New York Rangers to a seven-game Stanley Cup final, of course, losing that heartbreaker in New York City. But despite those expectations moving in, the team only got close to the Stanley Cup 16 years later. That was when, on June 15th, 2011, the Boston Bruins, of course, beat the Canucks in Game 7 at GM Place to win their very first Stanley Cup in 39 years. You probably remember how that evening ended with one of the city's most notorious riots. By that time, it was called Rogers Arena. The year before, 2010, General Motors had announced they'd no longer be paying for the naming rights, and that's when Rogers stepped in. And I should also mention that GM Place was also the home of the Vancouver Grizzlies NBA team from 1995 to 2001 when the team was cruelly snatched away from the city and relocated to Memphis. And you may not know this, but you can actually take a tour of Rogers Arena. They go 
every Thursday, Friday, and Saturday with tours at 10.30, 12.15, and 2 p.m. Some of the highlights of the tour include the press box and the alumni suite. Guests will also visit the Legends locker room and see an Olympic torch. You can even walk through the same halls that Coldplay, Shania Twain, Sir Paul McCartney, all those people did before their concerts at Rogers Arena. You have to book in advance, so go to rogersarena.com slash tours. It costs 25 bucks for an adult, 15 bucks for kids 12 and under. This is Vancouver Consumer. I'm Martin Strong. We're here every Saturday from 2 to 4 p.m. Thanks in large part to our producer, Leo Coelho, and we'll see you next week. The news is next. I'm Martin Strong. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.